0: Howdy, I'm Carolyn Wonderland, goofball guitar player, and you, my lucky friend, are listening to Talkin' Blues.
1: I'm curious. I looked at all the interviews, or not all the interviews, but you've done a lot of interviews over the years. What do you think about when I say, okay, let's do an interview, and you're getting ready for it? Uh, Do you even think about the process of this interview, or do you not think about it at all?
0: I guess guess it depends on what's going on. Sometimes there's things I can't talk about or mention like you know it's like oh you know like if you if you just got on somebody else's project and you're like i gotta keep my mouth shut till they say (laughs) it first you know but aside from that aside from sitting on things no pretty all right my big mouth has gotten me in trouble before though
1: (laughs) (laughs) um can i am i allowed to ask you about where you got your name
0: sure i mean i was a i was in high school and uh, my friend Teddy Lim was my guitar playing buddy. We would uh, we would hang out a lot and play guitar and get into the mischief that teenagers do when we're you know running around. And uh, he was the guy that that put headsets on my on my ears and and a Hendrix reel to reel, just everything he had ever done, and 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 said, "Take this acid, put this on your ears, and let's go." <laughs> so so he was he was that guy, you know, a, a huge touchstone in my life and. I booked us a gig, but we didn't have a band name, and he's like Carolyn Wonderland. And I was like, ooh, keeping it. Wow! <laughs> so I've had it since I was, oh, I don't know, sixteen, seventeen years old or so, and I figured I'd go into the clubs and play, and that way, if I messed up or you know made a fool of myself, nobody could nobody could find me or hold <laughs> it against my parents.
1: <laughs> it's a great name because it just conjures up something very like it. It almost there's a certain fantasy or something that's fantastic about about it or dream like about the name
0: I like that it's open-ended I don't I don't think that anyone comes in with any expectations with a name like that you know
1: (laughs) (laughs) well well done on the name um let's begin at the early part where I I believe your mom was a musician can you talk about tell me a little bit about your mom
0: my mom was a special education teacher in Texas. She uh, was our Girl Scout leader and a guitar player. And I'd I'd go when I was a kid and watch her play mostly acoustic stuff. But uh, her and her friend George Hill, um, and they would go and play like you know places in Mel Tarwater's Pizza Palace in Belleville and places around Houston. And they'd do stuff like you know Jerry Jeff Walker, Towns the Eagles stuff like that. So I always I always dug hanging out. Grabbing quarters out of their tip jar and playing video games <laughs> when I was a kid, but I loved just sitting there singing harmony. So sometimes they let me pop up on stage and do the high part, just because it was a worth, I suppose. <laughs>
1: um, I presume your love of music comes from that exposure.
0: I think so. Everyone on my mom's side pretty much played. My uh, her her mom was a fiddle player, and uh, and her dad a ragtime piano player. I've got I've got his piano downstairs still.
1: Wow, so were family gatherings like a musical party?
0: Not necessarily, but yeah, on on, on occasion, with when, when the mood would strike.
1: <laughs> and and guitar was your first instrument. Tell me, what well, was it your first instrument?
0: Um, I kind of just played on whatever was around the house. I mean, I started, I started writing songs. You know, I guess I started learning to read music and and write music like notation on the piano. And then, and then there was a trumpet that was my aunt's when she was in junior high school, so that ended up being my trumpet. So formal lessons on piano and, and trumpet, but guitar was just what I'd always fallen into. I've, I've held my mom's guitar since I was eight, so I don't know any better. It's always funny, too. Folks will ask, like, how does it feel to be a, a woman guitar player? And I'm like, I, it's nothing to me. My first person I saw play guitar was my mom. You know, it never struck me you know it never struck me that it was off limits plus if you look at the shape of a guitar what is that going to hold on a dude uh, i argue that the guitar was built for women <laughs> <laughs> um
1: i mean it, it it's it's a question that i don't like asking anymore because i just think it's a silly question cuz how could you know what or what, a, what it's like to be a, a a male guitar player
0: i know it's like well uh <laughs> back when i was a tadpole no <laughs> but it
1: But there must be something about having your mom play and thinking, yeah, I can do that. I mean, I I wonder if it was, would that be the reason why you pursued music as a career?
0: I think it's just, it was the only thing that held my interest for a real long time. I, you know, growing up, I remember my grandmother would always ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, everything. (laughs) I was a little, very spazzy kid. It's like, today I'm going to go to the moon. Tomorrow I'm a veterinarian but but really playing playing music was just always this great mystery in this box that opened as soon as you figured something out there was like you know 20 more questions that that led to so i i've always loved that i still do it still perplexes me some people would say that's obvious <laughs>
1: <laughs> no um i wonder though and i find this fascinating i mean in 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 who you are you're you're a singer you're a guitar player you're a songwriter you're a performer i mean those are four very different things. I don't know if you see it that way. Um, If you see that you need to work on one thing over the other. But I wonder how, in the very beginning, what drew you first? Was it the guitar playing or the singing?
0: I, I don't know. I would think it's both. I mean, I've always just been fascinated by things that make noise, you know? So like and and still to this day in a room full of guitar players I'll, I'm the singer in a room full of singers I'm the guitar player and it makes me happy because I know I can at least participate I can be useful I know something I can put in there and I've learned how to shut up when I don't have something cool to put in there <laughs> that lesson took a little longer where,
1: where does the songwriting come in because that's that's an art in itself and and it's a it's a difficult one and it's a, I presume like talking about learning something that's another thing that you I presume you constantly work at
0: always. That's a, it is a perpetual thing. You always keep a notebook with funny, either maybe it's a funny saying or a haiku or just something that, something that angers you or confuses you because you want to explore why you feel that way about it. For example, you know, Uh to me, songs, I I'm in the school of thought that songs exist in the ether around us all the time. And sometimes you go fishing and you catch one. And sometimes it's a dry spell for a while. I was out for a little while, uh, Bob Dylan had invited me to come out to, to do a couple of shows. This is like in the mid two thousands. And, uh, and, and it was really funny that afternoon at soundcheck. we were just jamming around being goofballs and, and he, uh, and he said to me, you know, it's like, boy, I, I, you know, I'd really like to know like what a woman would have sang back on leopard skin box hat. Like what would her words back be? And I was basically my writing assignment. So I went up to my room and, uh, and I went fishing, and I and I caught it, and I realized it's like my, my room was pretty close to Bob's. Maybe I was fishing <laughs> from his stream that night. I don't know, you know. But but the next day we did it at, at Soundcheck, and it was uh, it was hilarious. I, I I loved I loved seeing him giggle. He was like, "That was Bobby." I was like, "That's what you wanted," I thought. <laughs> okay, so I
1: have to ask, how does mm-hmm. how does that happen? How does Bob Dylan ask you? Oh, how, how do you get connected to Bob Dylan?
0: It was the weirdest thing. I I have no idea how he heard of me. Um, I just know that I got a call. Like I want to say, I think it was two thousand three or four. I was in a I was in Houston for Easter, and I was hanging out at my friend Pam Jam's house, and I got a call from my friend Amory Harrop. We play uh, played together in a band called Sisterville and she's like, "Hey, I'm here with Ray Benson, my future producer at that point." um and and we're backstage at at Bob Dylan's show and Bob says he wants to meet you and I was like what (laughs) (laughs) load the car start driving to Austin as fast as you can and uh I made it before the end of the show I got to catch a couple of songs and and so I'm side stage to say hello and this is how I met Ray Benson too is is like you know he's all six foot seven I'm all five foot two (laughs) and he's and he's suddenly this big arm is behind my back and I was like you know, I didn't think much of it, you know, and I got to meet Bob Dylan, say hello and thank you and what a pleasure it is to meet you. And here's a demo CD of stuff I'm working on. And, and, uh, and I realized that Ray's hand was behind me and he's like, I just wasn't sure if you were going to faint or not. And that's like a 20 foot drop behind <laughs> you. And I was like, wow, thank you for looking out for me. <laughs> what a cool guy. So, uh, so we ended up working together, you know, me and Ray for like four albums. He gave me a home at Bismo for 10 years. That was really cool. And, uh, and Bob, yeah, he would just call on occasion. And, you know, the, the, the next morning he called me. I forgot that I wrote my phone number on the demo that I gave him. And so I hung up on him. I thought it was a friend of mine pulling my leg. <laughs> <laughs> and he called me right back. And said, uh, are you awake? <laughs> yes, yes, I am now. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> so I can't even imagine how intimidating it would be to write a song or take one of his songs and rewrite it.
0: It was a. It was frightening. It was, but but it's also one of those things where it's like, well, he asked, so so get out of your own damn way and and do it. See what comes of it. I mean, worst case scenario, he'll go, he'll laugh, and that's it. Best case scenario, he laughed, and that's it. You know, I mean, other <laughs> way you go, it's cool.
1: <laughs> um, does, is it easy to become comfortable? Because I, I know that there's a connection between musicians. So if he, you know, you meet him and he's a fellow musician, and even though he might be one of the greatest songwriters and one of the great folk singers of, of his time. Do you become comfortable with him really quickly?
0: Oh, I was always very frightened, you know, at the beginning. And I think he's used to people being that way, so he knew to expect it. But he's, you know, it was it was always really cool, you know, Miss Wonderland this, Miss Wonderland that, talking about music. I got to ask him questions about Big Joe Williams and, you know, Victoria Spivey and things like that. So it was just, it was awesome. And so he lights up talking about music and things that he loved. So it was really cool to get to experience that. I'm sure. I I would have never expected it in a million years. So, but I keep my phone number the same just in case he ever decides to call again. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me at what point did you decide
1: that this is what you wanted to pursue?
0: Oh, I've pretty much known since I was eight, this is it. This is what I want to do. I remember when my my parents were saving up uh, some money for me and my brother to go to college, and I was like, "Yeah, just just put mine in John's name." I <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm you know I got thrown out of high school and started playing in bars, and that's and that's you know as happy as I could be.
1: And what kind of music were you playing at that point?
0: Uh Mostly blues, Um I would say. Like the places in Houston where I grew up, like when I very first started playing, you know, like heavy metal was the thing where guitars were. And there's a lot of great players and it was a lot of fun to, to learn and do. And I mean, and I still love like, you know, like especially the cool songs that have like meat on them, you know, like Alice Cooper songs that are always freaking amazing to play. They're so fun. But... Going growing in Houston, it's like the clubs where I wouldn't get ID'd and where everybody was open to ideas were the blues bars, you know, the jams, and so those—that's what I ended up, you know, falling into and loving. I I enjoyed that you could go up on a jam night, make up a song about people in the audience, you know, and, and you know, play guitar, and it's a—it's a, it's a relatively—I hmm, don't want to say this wrong. It's not that it's a simple form; it's that it's a universally recognized form. But if you don't put yourself in it, if you're not like committed to it, and you don't have something to say, it's like really obvious. So I think that it's a great music to to delve into yourself and to learn.
1: Um, Tell me a little bit about Texas blues because I mean, to me, I find Texas very interesting on many, many levels. Yeah. But there's so many great musicians that I've been able to talk to a lot from Austin. Um, but not necessarily all from the Austin but I, I just get this feeling that Texas is almost like a different country on its own. And, and, oh, and sure. musically, it has a distinctive style. It has certainly produced a lot of great Texan musicians. But Tell me your Texas what what that is.
0: Well, to me, I think, I think that's true because there's, I mean, every place is a crossroads of the music that's, that's in the past and the music that's, you know, you still got your feet in and stuff that's going to come and in the future. Well, you, could, you should have a part in that. Everybody who's playing music does, whether they know it or not. But uh, to me, Texas, being the crossroads where it is, like specifically growing up in Houston, I could go see a killer jazz band. I could go watch an amazing Zydeco band Sunday morning. I could pop over to a gospel brunch. Then I could go see like five, you know, living blues legends, you know, for five dollars. I'm not saying that that's great for the economy of the musicians at hand, but for someone who is wanting to delve in, I mean, music is there to be found, you know, and it's for every it's for every group. So that makes me happy. And Texas Yeah, it has its own sound. You're gonna have, you know, you're gonna have some, you're gonna have some Tex Mex. You're gonna have some Zydeco. You're gonna have some, you know, some, a little bit of everything, you know. But it definitely still sounds like Texas to me. I like the genreless approach to music. I don't like to necessarily, you know, I don't want to clog anything when I'm writing. However, it wants to come out, that's how it's going to be, you know. So, so we're kind of all over the place, and I appreciate that. But I want to approach it as if, uh like someone like Doug Somm would, he can play any kind of music and you know, it's Doug Somm. you know.
1: And he also had an impact on your life. Did he not?
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, I, you know, first time I met him, he called me rainbow head <laughs> as well. I was, I was recording over at, a, at at Willie Nelson's Peternales studio for Justice Records and in, in the mid nineties, early to mid nineties. And, uh, and and I was just was like, Oh, such a big fan. I was just so jazzed that he even knew I existed. And then uh, I don't know, maybe five or six years later, we were on the road doing the High Sierra Festival together in Northern California and uh and we just hit it off and hung out for a few days talking. He was out with the, the gourds that, that tour. It was really a great show. And he says to me, He says, Well, so what are you doing and i'm like well you know i'm thinking i gotta move from houston because i'm starting to write the same song over and over again i think i need to change the scene i need to go he said what are you thinking about and i was like well you know i'm thinking amsterdam i'm thinking new york i'm thinking maybe sam i don't know i don't know where i'm going and he said he says well why don't you try austin it's the land of free guitar lessons and it's not that far if you got to go visit family <laughs> i was like all right sold
1: <laughs> um Explain that idea of free guitar lessons, because I think I read somewhere that's an idea that that intrigues you or learning from other people is really important to you.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it always has been, you know, uh, the fact that you can pay to go see a show and and some shows are free and some shows are, are inexpensive. To me, you've paid for the show. The guitar lesson is free. You know, if you're paying attention, there's a free guitar lesson in there from damn near every show you go to and I remember too learning early on not to be so visual with what I was trying to take home you know like oh where's your fingers on the fretboard when you're doing that you know instead listen to the lick and the the reason I learned that is because the first guitar player that I really got visually stuck and couldn't figure out what they were doing was Albert Collins I didn't realize he had a different tuning to go (laughs) along with (laughs) I mean, you know, there's the capo, but then wait a second, how? Uh, how come I can't do that?
1: I wonder how he came up with that sound, you know, because he's distinctively him. And you think, my God, what? You know, he hits that one note, you know, it's him.
0: Yeah, you should ask Debbie Davies that. She may have a yeah, great insight. True. She was, she was the the first guitar player I saw too when with Albert when I saw him as a kid. You know, and I was just like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> I want to grow up and do that
1: okay so so I mean there's a big difference between songwriter guitar player singer once again um yeah I I know you focus on all and, and it's all part of who you are but when you see a guitar player like that and you say I want to be like that how does how do you go about doing that how do you go about becoming the guitar player that you are
0: you, well, at first it seems, or and I might be wrong, but it seems to me at first that you, you carry your influences a little bit on your sleeve, you know, and then as you get into it and you go back to where their influences were and you see what's around you and you find other things like, you know, it's like, oh, it's like, like watching a guitar player get turned on to Django the first time is just such a what, <laughs> you know, eye opening thing. Same with Wes Montgomery, you know, or Charlie Christian or Jimi Hendrix or any of that the first time. First time you hear Hubert Sumlin, did that not like set your hair on fire? So, so to me, it's like, yeah, you hear that and you realize after a while that it's like they have their own voice. You got to find your own voice. How do you do that? You keep going until it's genuine. You know it. It resonates in you. I mean, I think about that, like listening to some of my early records and I'm like my vocals, like I had no training. I took up singing because our singer chickened out on the first gig you know so learning on the job was pretty tricky but I'm glad I did it it was this faster but I probably could have benefited from some schooling early on and instead I I hear myself trying to find what my voice is going to be and I I think I've settled on it but who knows five years from now I might look back and go oh what was I thinking this is but
1: yeah but it it wouldn't that would make total sense, though, would it not? Because you're always searching, and if you just stayed at one place, then you wouldn't be growing.
0: Yeah, it seems like that'd be pretty boring.
1: Um, as a you know, as a guitar player, how do you get better? how do, How do you consciously become better at what you do?
0: You play more. The more you play, the less you suck. And it's just true. You just you sit down with that guitar, and if you're you're watching TV, put the guitar in your lap. You'll be surprised how many interest, how many instruments, and how many Voicings you can play, like you know, the theme to The Simpsons. You know, it's like, oh, I I need to work on my intervals on my lap steel. Okay, well, try something minor and do, you know, playing along with stuff. I, I think, yeah, I think finding the finding the not necessarily the blue note, but finding the things that that resonate with you that make it like, ah, I meant that, you know. And then you just keep working on it till you get it. To me, it's like guitar solos. If I've got a specific motif or a melody in mind. It's like, I'll work on that thing until I finally get it, you know, and it's like, but people have been watching me work on it for like two or three years live and doing the songs like, oh, I finally got it. And then you let it go and you try to do something else with it. (laughs) Do you
1: know, um, as that eight year old kid, you probably didn't know, but as you grew up and started playing in the bar scenes in 15, did you know what your goal was? Did you know what you wanted to be or what this what becoming a musician full time meant and what you were hoping to achieve?
0: Not really. I mean, I kind of, I kind of had drawn myself up a a five-year plan when I got thrown out of high school and my dad was like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, well, I don't know. He's like, well, figure it out. So I wrote up a little plan and I figured, well, you know, if I can, if I can like, you know, have a, have a job or two that, that, that doesn't mind that I play music and, you know, and and that I can, you know, kind of be a slacker on (laughs) to be real so I can dedicate myself to playing music, then if I can get that together in five years, I'll keep doing it. And, uh, you know, I just kept extending that.
1: (laughs) You know, but it surprises me to me that you're one of the few musicians who actually had a five-year plan at any point in their career. Like not, most musicians don't seem to have that plan. They might have a dream, but not a five-year plan.
0: Well, it's just, I mean, to me at that point, the five-year plan was like, you know, get a job better than working at Walgreens and, (laughs) you know, And make sure, you know, make sure that you can pay your rent so that you can support your music habit, you know, and that's, and that's what it was. I just couldn't, I couldn't figure not playing. It just didn't seem right. If it was for free, then I'd figure that out. But, you know, fortunately, people do, people do support when they, when they can. So I've, I've been okay.
1: Okay. And then at one point or another, you spent like two years on the road.
0: Well, no, I've, I've been on the road since 99, at least. No, shoot, 94. But I lived in my van for a couple of years because I had lost my lease. Right. And it was, yes, yeah, a long, sad story. My poor landlord, and she had, had some uh, had some difficulties and cashed a bunch of checks of mine that she had lost over the years. <laughs> and so, so I had zero money in my accounts. I'm on the road. And I need to put fuel in my van. And what's, what's going on? Everything was cash. I got home, had two weeks to get out. And I figured like most people do in that situation. You're like, oh, I'll put my stuff in storage. I'll find a place in like three or six months or something. And once you're homeless, it is uh, really difficult to get back, you know, to get back into being housed. So yeah, I ended up staying in my van for two years and uh, then found a found a roommate and in, in my friend Andrea who who helped me to, you know, be in a place with running water again. That's, that's a lovely thought, a roof over your head. That's also why I mean, I feel it's so important. I I volunteer with this group called homeaustin.org. And we raise money so that like musicians 55 and older in the Austin area, we help with housing. We make sure that, you know, if your mortgage, you know, we try to make sure your mortgage, your rent, whatever it is to keep you housed. Because if we can keep you out of the system, it's going to benefit you greatly. Because once you're in there, it's real hard to get out.
1: Um, But I got the impression, maybe I'm wrong, during those two years, you were quite busy. I mean, part of the reason was that you were on the road for so much.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, you know, necessity dictated that. It's like, did I want to shower? Did I want to, you know, otherwise I'd be, you know, in my van. Parked somewhere. Sometimes at someone's place for a couple of days. Didn't want to overstay my my welcome. You know, if you get a hotel room, you know, I'd, I'd I'd check in early, check in early, and check out late so you can get two showers out of that thing. You know, but these are life skills that that uh, that I don't necessarily think everyone has to has to live to know. You know, but it does make it uh it does bring it to the forefront once you've had to experience it for a while.
1: I, I'm sure. Um, I I wonder what you learn from that experience?
0: There's a, there's a lot. I mean, there's still a lot that, that, that you learn from it when you think about it, you know, um, how to be safe, you know, is, is a, is a big part of it. I'll also say that uh, you'll, you'll notice folks who've been in homeless uh, situations for a while, almost always seem to have a, a, an, a, co- a companion, a pet, a, an animal, and it's because they will find you. And at first I just laughed at myself. I was like, oh, great. Yeah, of course. Here I am living in a van. And this and this dog who needs more help than I this puppy, ah, it's never gonna make it. Took it, took it to the vet, got her fixed. Her name was Bessie May Mucho, my my puppy dog. And um she would be so helpful to me in that situation because, you know, it the sun is up, there's a dog who's on your on your lap pressing on your bladder because she's got to pee. It's like, oh. Guess you guess I do too. Oh, you know what that dog needs to eat. I guess I do too. There comes a time where taking care of something outside of yourself will help you to take care of yourself as well, and not be so lost in in the depression that inevitably follows that situation.
1: How did that affect your music or you as a musician? I don't,
0: I don't know. It made me. Uh, it made me do everything I could on the limited resources and the limited equipment I had, you know, I mean, I'd pawned a bunch of stuff. So I had a, you know, I just had my telly. I think Um, my mom had her strat and her guitar still at her house. I would, I would never, you know, but, uh, but my own stuff. Yeah. Got, you know, pawned a few amps, pawned a few guitars. Now I, I think I didn't take the lesson. Well, I think I went the opposite. I'm a freaking guitar and amp hoarder. I really (laughs) didn't get a handle on this. Do you know how many guitars is the perfect amount to have?
1: I have no idea, and you have to explain to me. I, I get the fact that you have one guitar and you say, "Well, you know, this gives me this kind of sound, this for this mm. type of music," but I would like to have that for something else. But I, I don't know where it becomes limitless. You know.
0: Well, because mm, actually, okay, answer, okay, answer because the question first. The, yeah the answer the answer to the question is uh, the perfect amount of guitars is the amount that you have plus one. <laughs> Always, (laughs) always, (laughs) uh, you know, guitars, guitars have their own voices and it's a beautiful thing. Like, like, so my telly, which, which I've loved, you know, I've, I've, I've got a, it's a, it's a thin line, you know, with the F holes. And, and I I took the pickups out and put some Joe Bardens in, you know, being a fan of Danny Gattons, you know, you got to put those hot rails in. So, so I got me some, some Joe Bardens and, and man, it keeps up with anyone else's guitar, I love it. You can do those fake pedal steel bins and you're not falling off of any of those, you know, poles. It's, everything's straight across. And I, I love them. They got a great growl. And that's been my number one guitar for years and years and years. And then I went out with John Mayall's band and it was maybe two or three tours in where I was just like, something's something's off. There's I need to bring something else to this. And what is it? You know, and I went back and listened to all the practice tapes he gave me, which was like eighty songs. <laughs> you know, learn these eighty songs, chart them. Good luck. You know, a lot of it was live stuff with Peter Green, and I was like, P90s. I need to bring a guitar with P90s for this. So I brought the Blues Hawk that Patrice Pike had given me years ago, and that was a uh, that's that's been my number one ride or dies this last couple of years. <laughs>
1: But it would be a different guitar, because I know you kept your own band during that time. Oh yeah. So would you be relying on different guitars for different? Circ- I mean, with your band, you would you play one guitar versus the band the guitar for John Mayall's band?
0: I ended up just sticking with the Blueshawk Hawk for a while. I mean, a because she was always in good you know good condition, top top playing uh, order, and a uh, British Airlines had had tweaked my Telecaster for me. And- <laughs> Thanks British Airlines. <laughs> so now, now I have a case that uh, it's kind of hilarious. I have a I have a I have a case that costs more than the guitar is worth, but it means that the guitar will make it to every show. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's silly, but you have to when you're flying. You absolutely have to.
1: Okay, so tell me about the John Mayo experience.
0: Um- it's been so fun. He's. He's the best boss ever, and it and it really is like a finishing school that you just never want to graduate from because he's he's so fun and joyful. There's two people in my life who I think have as much joy, you know, to get to play, and it's 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 John and Levon Helm. Those are the two people I've seen really just express and embody that amount of joy at playing music, you know. And it was funny. One of the tours we went on, it was the most I'd ever done in that a period of time. It was like. Almost fifty shows, sixty days, nineteen countries, you know. And I'm just, I'm floored. I'm like, how does he do this? Every day he opens his mouth, and this beautiful voice comes out. Me, I holler, so I'm like, three days in, <laughs> need a little rest, <laughs> you know. Bruh. And he, he's just so happy to do it, and amazing. And always would beat everyone to the merch table, just spry as hell, you know. And and getting to play with him was was such. it, it is such a great honor. I mean, it really is. But like learning learning how it is for a lifer at that point like you know i would be like don't you want to you know like maybe take a day off and go see the coliseum or you know go see the louvre or something and i could hear his eyes rolling just uh no (laughs) dear i've I've seen it all i want to play (laughs) i was like gotcha
1: you know so this was 2018 when he asked you to join the band yeah somewhere on there so what, when you get that an offer like that and I know it's, it's a, a, a great honor and also a great opportunity. but what goes through your mind because you, you have your own career that you've been building on and working at? Do you think what will this do to my own career? Do, you know like, what goes through your mind when, when you get asked such, a, such such a question or given such well, an opportunity? I mean-
0: well, I mean, you know, I, I I just figured at first I got the phone call when I was I was in Woodstock. We had just uh, we had just come from paying our respects at Levon's grave and and I was packing up my bags and I got a phone call. And, you know, and it was my friend Greg Arzab, who plays bass, you know, for John for years. We had met when I was a teenager and my band uh, got to open for Buddy Guy. And at that point. Greg Arzab and Ray Killer Allison were Buddy Guy's rhythm section, you know, so best rhythm section I'd ever seen at that point. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so so we had kept in touch, you know, just loosely, you know, over the years. And so I was surprised to get a call, you know, in Woodstock. And he says, hey, you know, we're recording this uh, this new this new Mayall record and wondering uh, this is what would become. Nobody told me. And he says, wondering if you might want to, you know, play guitar on a song or two. And I was like, really? yeah I'd love to I mean you know if you don't like it no problem but I'll, I'll give it my best shot just let me know you know and then John got on the phone and he says well you know we talked for a little bit And he goes well then why don't you just join the band for a bit and I was like oh okay sure <laughs> I mean you know my and honestly my thinking at the time was like it's like always oh, you know he's in his he's in his mid-80s he's probably not going to play all that often and then like I said no he plays all that he's a road dog he's into it you know he's and yeah, he's he's super happy on stage and play, and it's it's the best.
1: <laughs> I mean, what what an honor when you when you think about the the lineage of guitar players who've gone through, and how does that play into how you approach that gig?
0: I try to. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, the the pickup selection being you know from 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 the ears and hands of Peter Green, uh, but I try to approach the songs. I I, I go back and I listen to. Uh, you know who wrote it if it's not one of John's songs like like he really loves J.B. Lenoir so if the so if I'm listening to something like that I want to know what's the head riff or what's what's the thing that that you can hang your coat on and then improvise from there you know John doesn't like things to be the same or stagnant so you know out of those 80 songs it would be 12 or 15 you never know which ones till you show up you know and they're posted on the piano and um i i love it though because he he pulls so much out of everyone that way he's never bored the band is always on their toes it shows up and and he'll you know he'll pull stuff out of you sometimes i'll play a song and it's like okay i did that a couple times played played three times around that suite and then he'll just give you this look take it again it's like but i'm out the notes keep going <laughs> i
1: i I know, as a musician, eighty songs probably isn't a big deal to me. No, for me like it a, is. I mean, you probably knew some of those songs, anyways, right? Like some of yeah, them, some but, of them would have been classics. But I mean, to yeah. be able to just go—if he calls out one song—and and you got to be there to know that—that's mind-boggling to me.
0: Yeah, some some of them are trickier than others for sure. It's like, all right, here's this Chris Smither, or Mail Order Mystics. Like, all right, now I gotta gotta remember which part comes where, you know.
1: What did that experience? I think I read that you wanted to become a better player and also become a better leader or leader of yeah. a band. Tell me about what you learned from that experience.
0: Well, just watching his his generosity and how and how he's so supportive of of the musicians who are with him, and and just seeing how different bands travel, I think is 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 important. You know, it's certainly valuable because I've just known what I've known. You know, I know to let's all jump in the van and go, you know, that's, that's it, you know, same with, same with my recording stuff. It's like, I mean, I love to record. It's so fun, but I don't, I don't know how to, you know, I don't know how to sell stuff except, Hey man, I got a CD. Would you like it? Cool. You know, I really (laughs) don't have a, a marketing plan. I'm not, not wired that way. So, so it's really cool to see how other people travel and, and, and to see some things that are universal and to see you know, see something just like, oh, I could, I could definitely make an improvement if I tried that, that would make things faster. I mean, it's small things, you know, it's a lot of minutia, but it really does add up.
1: And, and I'm not sure if you were able to put that into practice, based on what's been happening over the last couple of years. But a I know that bit. you've been playing a bit. Um, yeah. Did you did you find that there was things that you learned that you've applied?
0: Yeah, I would hope so. I mean, you know, there yeah, there's a bit. I don't I don't know if anyone else notices, but yeah, I think so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then around that time you wound up getting a deal with Alligator Records.
0: Wasn't that the most amazing thing? So <laughs> so that all started again oddly enough in Woodstock. I I I love that place. There's something magical about it. But uh I was hanging out with my friend Cindy Cashdollar at her place. And you know, she knew that she knew that my, you know, I had, I've been out with John for a while and I had these these songs and she knew that I didn't have a label anymore. And like, what was I going to do? She was, so she's like, what are you going to do? And I was like, well, I, uh, I, I want to make a record. So I, I'm thinking about, you know, getting the songs together. You know, I'm kind of seeing when she might be available. I can kidnap her to come play. And she says, well, who are you going to have produce it? And I thought about it for a minute. I was like, you know, in a perfect world, I mean, I'd ask Dave Alvin. I mean, I think I think he a gets it, especially the genreless approach and always sounding like yourself. And he's just he's a magical guy. He really is. So, so I was surprised. Cindy called him right up, and he said yes. I was like, oh god. So then I really had to get it together. You know, it's like okay, now I really got to get serious about this. And he came to Austin, and we recorded at my friend Stuart Sullivan's place. Um, I had first recorded with him when I was in the Jerry Lightfoot band you know, at the turn of the century with uh, Vince Wellnick and Frosty and Larry Folsher and John X. Reed and Charlie Pritchard. It was a great band, really great band. But uh, I loved getting to work with Stuart. So the opportunity to do it again was amazing. Dave flew in. We had a real good time, got Marsha Ball and and Shelley King and Red Young and Jimmy Dale Gilmore came and sang and Jan Fleming played some accordion and and me and Kevin Lance and Bobby Perkins, you know, we just had a ball. And then Cindy Cashdollar was in town, so she played too. <laughs> so I had this record, you know, and I was like so happy with it. It's like, oh, this is joyful. It feels like, you know, you can hear that everybody was having a good time. You can't, you know what I'm saying? It came across. I was like, I'm loving this. Can't wait to go on the road. And I was figuring, ah, you know, I'll sell it out of the back of the van. It'll be like like I do. And then the pandemic hit, and it's like, well, shh shit you know it's like what am i going to do all i know how to do is drive around and play music you know and sell cds from the stage so i i was at a loss so i sat on it i wasn't going to you know just release it to nothing and i got a i got a call from from Bruce at, at alligator and he says um i understand you have something that i might want to hear and i was like are you serious i i grew up with a great deal of alligator records in my collection so <laughs> really blew my mind to get to talk to Bruce. And of course I had to ask him all the Hound Dog Taylor questions you would imagine. <laughs> you know, but I was like, I was like, Oh, I'll send it to you. And in the back of my mind, I'm like really frightened thinking like, Oh man, you know, a, is it good enough? B, is it blues enough? Cause I'm all over the place. I don't know. I don't know what anyone's going to think about it. And, uh, and he, and he called back and he said, yeah, we like it. We're going to put it out as is. I was like, oh, i was so <laughs> excited. I couldn't believe it. So, so, yeah, so that's that's been out since October. We did a little touring um, in the summer. We did. We got to do a little bit in the northeast and the Midwest, like, you know, before Delta and then after Delta a little bit. But, yeah, it's, uh hasn't been as much touring in the winter when everything's indoors. Do you, know? do you have any idea
1: how Bruce found out about it?
0: I'm not sure. I know that I know I've got some friends on that label. So maybe Marsha Ball told him. I don't know. I, I really don't know.
1: Because isn't isn't it unusual? I mean, doesn't it usually work that you send it to them and then they say yes or no? I mean, it's very.
0: I... Yeah, I, w- I would think. But I mean, I hadn't really sent it around or anything. I don't know. I guess <laughs> maybe the sting of rejections as a kid. I, I don't know. I, I hadn't I just hadn't sent anything.
1: Well, that's interesting. And so I, I wonder if you ever thought about moving to Woodstock because good things seem to happen there.
0: I know it's, it is a magical place, but, but I have a, I have a magical place here too. I got to say, Austin, still a great, still a great place, man, full of beautiful people. And I feel like there's a lot of work to be done here. I know some would, are some would note, for example, that it's like, okay, uh, Texas, our politics sucks, but the music's great. <laughs> Maybe that goes hand in hand. I'm not sure, you know, but.
1: uh I have to wonder when, when the politics sucks, And I think it's a little different in Austin than it is in other parts, if I understand it correctly, in terms of the people.
0: It's a little bit of a bubble, but all all the cities in Texas are pretty much, you know. Right, that's true. Yeah.
1: Um, Is that weird for you when when you realize that the politics in Texas is pretty strange and that's where you live and you have to deal with...
0: I have a, I've, I grew up reading Molly Ivins column as a child. In fact, when I very first started learning how to read after the, after the comics, I pretty much went to Molly Ivins, just first off based just on her picture in the paper, you know, (laughs) but, uh, but I know how it is to be a Democrat in Texas and still be joyful. You know, you, you have to take the wins where you can, and you got to keep the fight up, but you got to be joyful about it. You know, there's no, you know, there's no, how do you say this? there's no progress unless everyone's involved you know what i mean it, it has to benefit everyone and and we've and we've had ann richards and we've had barbara jordan we've had good people and i believe we will have them again but you got to stick around and fight right <laughs> you know it ain't going to happen if everybody packs up and leaves or if everyone decides not to vote
1: for sure um the pandemic how did it affect you i mean you you talked about it and and, and in some ways there's been a positive twist because maybe if it didn't happen you wouldn't be on yeah. alligator. But uh, but as a musician, I know you did some street live streaming concerts and stuff. How yeah. but as a musician, how did it affect you and how how does it affect you?
0: Well, I mean, it's you know, there's 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 great streaks of depression of, of not being able to to do what you what you do. And I know that I'm certainly not alone in that in that feeling but there's also a great responsibility for the people who come to see you play. Like being in Texas, it's very interesting, you know, it's like freedom, this and freedom that, um, you know, but try smoking a joint and see how, how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know it's a night in jail and 10 grand. So, uh, wow. So yeah. So freedom, etc. cetera. <laughs> um, but the arguments that, that, you know, that, that keep people down, but also, are, are so non-beneficial. Like for example, with the pandemic, uh, we cannot in Texas uh, require vaccinations or masks for club shows because they have, uh, they threatened the club's liquor licenses if we do that. So I haven't been playing very much. I'm going to be doing a show in a couple of weeks indoors. I'm nervous. I might sing with a mask on. You know, I, I don't know. I, I did a memorial service with my friend Shelly King the other day and we, it was, you know, it was a giant barn-like situation, but still indoors. So windows open, masks on.
1: It's it's crazy what this pandemic has revealed.
0: Yes. You know? and,
1: and just the division in people, in thoughts, in philosophies, whatever. And it's, it's mind-boggling.
0: It's difficult, too, to watch people, you know, jump so quickly to these camps and, like, just have such a hatred for each other. And it's like, hey, you know who the bad guy is? The damn virus. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. It's, and, and, and even if you think, you know, like, oh, my friend over here, uh, I totally disagree with their stance and I think that they're selfish or being a jerk. Well, get past that because you still have got to look out for them and you don't want them dead. You know, it's, it's uh, I don't know. It, everybody has their own approach to it. And being in Texas, especially, it's like I can't besmirch anyone else for going out and playing in situations that I would consider dangerous because Uh, They need to eat, (laughs) you know, need to need to pay rent, got kids. These, you know, we still have to live. And there's uh, there's Texas is real good about uh, taking away any kind of help to you once you're born.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it is surprising when I because in Canada, things are right now, things are pretty well closed down. Yes, there's no venues, there's no live gigs, whatever. Um, But, you know, just by the interviews that I do with American musicians, some places are affected, and other places it's like nothing's changed. and I just find that so fascinating
0: yeah, it's it's really it's really interesting and, and scary to try to navigate. I mean, I really, really appreciate the work of like I mean all the booking agents who have like slagged at it for this last couple of years and are just you know maintaining a, you know the sense that when it's when it's time we're ready, you know, and that's what it was for us. We were lucky that it was you know during the lulls. But even then it's like you know you stay in your bubble, you know you don't you don't go to the merch table and say hello to people anymore and i it bums me out i'm a I'm definitely a hugger, you know when it comes to like folks I hadn't seen in a while. also I wonder if you know the the days of passing a joint around in the alley are ever going to come back you know uh it's like i I tested this theory, but what I did was I brought pinders and just broke them in half. You take that half and don't pass it around. <laughs> pretty much you know
1: (laughs) well you see you had a plan
0: yeah i was like well i'm gonna do it i don't want to be rude here
1: (laughs) so you talked about having a five-year plan and extending it do you have and i know the world has changed but at this point do you have looking forward a plan a goal um
0: well nothing you know after, after after being after living in my van for those couple of years, I learned to, to at least have six months out, you know, and I try to have that cushion be a year. Um, this last couple of years, it was, you know, I pretty well depleted stuff. I still have some things I can pawn, you know, but, um, looking forward to getting back on the road, being, and being smart about it. You know, I think some of the lessons from the, from the pandemic are not lost on me. And I know, you know, trying to raise money to pay a band is is difficult, and it's going to remain that way for a while. But I got to make sure I can do it. So my my plan is to is to hold on to as much of my stuff as I can without pawning it in case some other disaster comes, and uh, and just just make it to the gig. That's all I hope for. You know, I hope there's another gig to make it to.
1: Well, I mean, I think all signs indicate that things should get better in a little while. Um, yeah. And you have a great album, like the. And I, I, I don't know how it's affected because you released it in October, and things have just changed in the last few months. But yeah. But it's still a great album. And hopefully, you know, well, when, when people get out there, when you get out there and play it, um, people will support it. So, thank you so much for doing this. It's a it's a real honor meeting you. And I know you came to Toronto a number of years ago. I didn't yeah. get a chance to see you, but. Um, I know a friend of mine went and he loved it and you're somebody I've always wanted to meet and I appreciate this opportunity
0: well I hope we get to come see you I hope everybody gets their act together that virus goes the hell away and we can go play music and hang out because when we when that moment comes I don't know if people are going to be as reserved as as we seem now or if it's going to be like french kissing strangers (laughs) on the street but but I'm kind of hoping for the latter
1: passing joints yeah man (laughs) Carolyn thank you so much thank you